happening now. Donald Trump's gag order is mostly upheld in the federal election subversion case, an appeals court admonishing the former president while also giving him a green light to attack the special counsel, Jack Smith. Also tonight, the new criminal indictment of Hunter Biden and the legal and political fallout. The president's son accused of spending millions on a lavish lifestyle instead of paying his taxes. And the Michigan gunman who killed four classmates at his school back in 2021 is now sentenced to life in prison without parole. The teenager hearing emotional statements from the victim's families and then telling the court, and I'm quoting him now, I am a really bad person. Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer, you're in the Situation Room. Our top story tonight, Donald Trump gagged again in appeals court, agreeing the former president of the United States should be barred from public statements about witnesses and other key players in the federal election subversion case, but with some significant exceptions. CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider has more on the ruling. So Jessica, what does this mean for Trump? Well, Wolf, it means the gag order against Donald Trump, it will in fact be in place moving forward. But the appeals court today saying that the original gag order from District Court Judge Tanya Chukin, it was just too broad. So specifically, the appeals court is removing restrictions when it comes to Trump talking about special counsel Jack Smith. The appeals court really explained that Jack Smith is part of the Justice Department and that Trump should be allowed to criticize public officials and he should be able to express his views that this prosecution is politically motivated. So the appeals court here really trying to walk this fine line of protecting Donald Trump's First Amendment free speech rights, but also limiting just how far he can go in attacking witnesses and other court staffers and personnel, as we've seen him already do. So this is how the gag order will play out. Trump will not be able to make public statements about potential witnesses in this case. He also can't make derogatory comments that would interfere in this case when it comes to the court staff, the special counsel staff, or family members. And of course, we saw Donald Trump speak out against special counsel Jack Smith's wife recently at one of his rallies. So Trump will now be restricted from making any comments about her or other family members. Though it's important to note there will be no restrictions on his speech about special counsel Jack Smith or the judge in this case, or really the prosecution in general. So the appeals court in making this decision, they wrote this. They said, many of former President Trump's public statements attacking witnesses, trial participants, and court staff pose a danger to the integrity of these criminal proceedings. That danger is magnified by the predictable torrent of threats of retribution and violence that the district court found follows when Mr. Trump speaks out forcefully. And Wolf, tonight Trump is saying that his legal team will appeal. So the next step in this case would either be to appeal to the full appeals court here in D.C. since today's decision was just from that three-judge panel, or the president's legal team could take this appeal directly to the Supreme Court. Court, so presumably, we'll see what they do in the coming days. Wolf. All right, Jessica, thank you. Jessica Schneider reporting. I want to bring in CNN national correspondent Kristen Holmes, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, and ABC News chief Washington correspondent Jonathan Carley. He's the author of a brand new, very important book entitled Tired of Winning Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party. Uh, Ellie, let me start with you. You predicted here in the Situation Room this gag order would largely be upheld. Do you think the court today struck the right balance? I do, Wolf. I think they struck the nail right on the head. Anytime a court is in a position of having to deal with a gag order, they have to balance two competing concerns. And I think the court does that here in a detailed way. On the one hand, 
the court has to protect any defendant's very broad First Amendment rights. And under the order as it now stands, Donald Trump is free to criticize aggressively, if necessary, the judge, Jack Smith, DOJ, the charges against him. That's his right. On the other hand, the court has to balance the need for the district court, the trial court here, to protect the process, to protect the witnesses, the jury pool. And what Trump cannot do is attack witnesses about the substance of their testimony or attack staff or court members or say things that might infect the jury pool. So I think the Court of Appeals really did a, an admirable job, and I think they got it just right in striking that balance here. Ellie, do you think uh, it's likely the U.S. Supreme Court will review this decision? I do not think the Supreme Court will take this case up, Wolf. Yes, there is a constitutional element to it because we're talking about the First Amendment, but the mere presence of any constitutional issue is not enough for the Supreme Court necessarily to take it. I think the Supreme Court is going to want to stay hands off. I don't think they're going to want to get into micromanaging the minutia of this trial. And I don't think there's anything about the Court of Appeals opinion that's obviously wrong or that's screaming out for the Supreme Court to step in and fix it. So I think they're going to pass. And if they do pass, then this will be the last word on the gag order. And Jonathan Carl, uh, Trump slammed this decision on Truth Social. Uh, I want to get your reaction to part of his response. Let me quote from part of his response. People can speak violently and viciously against me or attack me in any form, but I am not allowed to respond in kind. Uh, but Jonathan, as uh, Jessica reported, the order doesn't restrict him from going after the Department of Justice or Jack Smith for that matter. What's your reaction? Or his political opponents, or Joe Biden, or, I mean, th th this is a very narrowly uh, a tailored uh, gag order. I think that this uh, decision by this appeals panel is, is a really good read. It goes through a reminder of the kinds of statements that Trump was, sta was making that, in the words of, of this panel, had real-time, real-world consequences. Uh, statements that he was making uh, about potential witnesses uh, and how they received uh, torrents of threats. Uh, we've seen this over and over again. We saw what happened uh, in the New York uh, civil case when uh, Trump not only went after the judge, but went after the clerk. A, a court a employee uh, said things about her that were flatly not true. Uh, and uh, she ended up receiving uh, several, many dozens a, a day of threats on her cell phone that uh, people somehow uh, got a hold of, anti-Semitic uh, threats. So, so look, I, I, I think that this is not about silencing uh, Donald Trump. In fact, this opinion goes chapter and verse into the importance of the First Amendment, but makes it clear that you cannot hide behind the First Amendment uh, to make statements uh, that are clearly not protected by the Good law. Good point. Kristen Holmes, uh, what are you hearing from your sources about the reaction uh, from uh, inside the Trump world? Well, if there was some expectation that this was going to be upheld, or at least part of it was going to be upheld. But the big question now is whether or not Donald Trump can actually abide by it. And I spoke to two senior advisors who said they think that it is possible that he has been briefed multiple times on what exactly he can and can't say and where exactly that line is. I had one advisor say that he's going to walk all the way up to the line but not cross it. Again, as we've mentioned, he can go after Jack Smith. He can go after the Department of Justice. We know this is a big part of his campaign to be president, that he is being politically persecuted and that he's going to continue with that messaging. There is some concern among some allies that when it comes to the witnesses, he might have a harder time, particularly when it comes to perhaps getting some of that testimony or learning what these witnesses have said. That is going to be where it becomes more difficult for the former president.
And Ellie, uh, the court also forcefully pushed back on Trump's argument that his criminal trial should be delayed until after the 2024 presidential election, saying that would, uh, quote, create perverse incentives. What did you make of that? Yeah, well, this is the buried headline of this ruling today. I mean, that's going to become monumentally important because Donald Trump is already in the process of appealing this immunity motion. He is certainly going to try to get this trial date, which is currently set for March of 2024, pushed back towards after the election. He's going to try any way possible to do that. And this is a signal and then some from the Court of Appeals that they're not going to be inclined to do that. So if it's going to be delayed, it's probably going to have to come from the U.S. Supreme Court, which is a tough shot to make. Good point. Uh, Jonathan, uh, what will this election year look like if the dominant Republican frontrunner is stuck in a courtroom rather than out there on the campaign trail? Well, I think that what what has happened as a result of we're already seeing this. I mean, he has spent more days in court in New York in that civil case, days that he did not have to be in court. There was only, you know, one day, which when he was uh, when he testified, he doesn't need to be there uh, that he has spent actually on the campaign trail. And as a result, uh, people are, are seeing more of the coverage of his legal troubles than they are of Donald Trump as a candidate. And I think this is actually uh, one of the challenges that we all face in, in covering and trying to understand this election is that people are not getting a real sense of Donald Trump, the candidate, of what he would be doing if he actually got into the White House again. What uh, would his program be? What does he mean by retribution and revenge? What would he be doing as president? Because, you know, so much of the coverage is in these courtrooms, and that's where he's going to be spending most of his time. Yeah, it's a good point, an excellent point, a real expert on Trump. Uh, thanks to all of you, and a special congratulations to Jonathan Carl uh, on his new book, Tired of Winning, Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party. Excellent, excellent read. Check it out for sure. Just ahead, Israel dramatically ramps up its strikes on Gaza and suggests it's uh, bringing Hamas to a, quote, breaking point. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, lately we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Israel is making new claims about its progress against Hamas as the third month of war begins with a significant escalation of strikes on Gaza. 
CNN's Alex Markward is joining us live from Israel right now. Alex, what's the latest? Well, Wolf, some very intense fighting going on. Earlier today, the IDF said that in the previous 24 hours, the, uh, they had carried out some uh, strikes on 450 different targets. That is the biggest number all across Gaza uh, since that fragile truce fell apart uh, a week ago, exactly a week ago on Friday. That's uh, the, one of the biggest numbers that we've seen since this war started uh, exactly two months ago. We did hear from the, uh, the defense minister of Israel earlier today. He said that he's starting to see the signs of Hamas beginning to break inside Gaza. Much of the IDF's focus, Wolf, is on Khan Yunis. That is the second biggest city in Gaza. That's where Israel believes that some of the most senior leaders of, uh, of Hamas are. And that is where Israel is focusing uh, a lot of its attention. Uh, the, uh, the IDF saying that they are going house to house tunnel to tunnel, carrying out raids. Uh, elsewhere in Gaza, in, in the North Wolf, uh, there we saw uh, Israeli troops raise the Israeli flag in Palestine Square. That is a main intersection in Gaza City, uh, not too far, incidentally, from, from Al-Shifa Hospital, which uh, I think uh, people will remember well. Um, and then Wolf, the IDF also announcing that they tried to carry out uh, a raid to rescue a hostage. Uh, that raid uh, did not go well. The hostage was not rescued. Two IDF soldiers uh, were severely injured. They have tried to carry out these rescue raids in the past. Uh, in, in October, they were successful. They got a, a young female hostage out. Of course, Wolf, that comes as these hostage talks have ground to a halt. And Alex, uh, the U.N. Secretary General made a rare move today to raise the alarm about the situation in Gaza right now. But how did that unfold? Well, Wolf, he invoked what's known as Article 99, uh, which is, is, is a very rare tool that the U.N. Secretary General uh, can invoke when there are threats to the maintenance of international peace and security. And, and so what uh, happened is there was a call for uh, a vote at the Security Council for an immediate ceasefire. The Security Council has 15 members, 13 voted in favor of an immediate ceasefire. One, the UK, abstained. The United States was the only one to vote against. The US vetoed uh, this call for an immediate ceasefire, this resolution. They say uh, that it was because Hamas was not mentioned in this resolution, the attacks uh, on October 7th. Of course, Wolf, the situation in Gaza, the humanitarian situation is just growing increasingly dire by the hour. Uh, the uh, Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health says that over 17,000 people have been killed. 85% of the overall population of Gaza has been displaced. Wolf. Alex Marquardt reporting from Tel Aviv. Thank you very much. Coming up, the new tax evasion charges against Hunter Biden and what they could mean potentially for the President of the United States. Tonight, President Biden's son, Hunter, is facing new charges, the most serious yet after his criminal indictment in a federal tax case. CNN's Paula Reed is covering the story for us. She's getting reaction as well. Walk us through, Paula, this indictment and some of the truly sensational details included. Sensational indeed. These charges, Wolf, are the result of a long-running investigation into Hunter Biden's finances. But now his father will be seeking re-election while fighting an impeachment bid from Republicans and while his son is fighting to avoid prison in now two federal criminal cases. President Biden ignored questions Friday about the latest criminal charges filed against his son. Any comment on the new charges against your son? Those new charges laid out in a 56-page indictment unsealed Thursday 
Prosecutors allege Hunter Biden engaged in a four-year scheme to not pay at least $1.4 million in taxes. They allege the younger Biden had money but spent it on drugs, escorts and girlfriends, luxury hotels and rental properties, exotic cars, clothing, and other items of a personal nature. In short, everything but his taxes. The case was supposed to be resolved with a plea deal that fell apart over the summer. I'm cooperating um, completely, and I am absolutely certain, 100% certain, that at the end of the investigation, that I will be cleared. The case stems from Hunter Biden's lucrative overseas business dealings. He did eventually repay taxes he owed, along with hundreds of thousands of dollars in penalties and fees. But prosecutors say that when he did finally file his returns, he included false business deductions in order to reduce his tax liability. His lawyers claim prosecutors have bowed to political pressure to bring charges against the president's son. In a statement, his attorney Abby Lowell said, if Hunter's last name was anything other than Biden, the charges in Delaware and now California would not have been brought. In a newly released podcast recorded before the indictment, Biden said the pressure comes from Republicans intent on undermining his father. They are trying to, in, the, in, in their most uh, illegitimate way, but rational way, they're trying to destroy a presidency. And so it's not about me. In their most base way, what they're trying to do is they're trying to kill me knowing that it will be a pain greater than my father could be able to handle. The indictment does not include any evidence linking these alleged crimes to President Biden. But GOP lawmakers continue to push forward with their impeachment inquiry and pursuing an interview with the president's son. My concern is that Weiss may have uh, indicted Hunter Biden to protect him from having to be deposed in the House Oversight Committee on Wednesday. Yeah, that doesn't really make any sense because Hunter's team didn't use the indictment he was already facing to try to avoid that appearance next week. They have said they would be more than welcome uh, there. They would ha be happy to sit down and answer questions, but it has to be public, something that the committee has so far rejected, insisting that a public appearance would only come after a behind-closed-doors interview. So, Wolf, it's unclear if and when he'll ever appear on the Hill. It's also unclear when he's going to appear in federal court. His initial appearance has not yet been scheduled. Paula Reed reporting for us. Excellent report, Paula. Thank you very much. I want to bring in our team of political experts to discuss. And Dana Bash, I'll start with you. You just heard Hunter Biden before these charges actually came out speak about the toll on him and his dad, not just politically, but personally. What impact will this have on President Biden as he campaigns for re-election? Well, it's already having uh, an impact because uh, it's very, very difficult for the president, for the president's reelection uh, campaign to try to navigate what is very, very ob obviously, understandably personal for the president. Uh, and it's not just about the uh, the indictment and the allegations, the criminal allegations, both the new ones in California and also in Delaware. It is about his addiction. And that was, I mean, Wolf, listening to Hunter Biden say, they're trying to kill me. He doesn't mean that metaphorically. He means that literally because he's an addict. 
And he, uh, and his argument has been that the reason he didn't pay his taxes, the reason he spent so much money, over a million, maybe almost a million and a half dollars on all of these um, untoward things and more, is because he was uh, addicted to very uh, to horrible drugs, to crack. And so what he is saying there is they're trying to get me to get me off the wagon, uh, which would destroy my father. And, you know, there, of course, are political uh, reasons for this. And he did uh, do, do things that were wrong. But from the perspective of Hunter Biden, from the perspective of his lawyers, not so much that it deserves this kind of attention. And that's why they say that if his name was anything other than Biden, that he wouldn't be prosecuted to the degree that he is right now after that plea deal fell apart in July. Interesting. Uh, David Axelrod, the, the indictment, as Dana just point, uh, pointed out, uh, really does uh, paint a, a very damning indictment of uh, charges yeah. against Hunter Biden. Uh, how does this reflect on the president of the United States. Look, uh, it does paint a damning portrait, and a lot of it was known already, uh, Wolf, uh, both through uh, other legal filings and through what uh, Hunter Biden has uh, said himself. Uh, the story of his addiction and some of the uh, activities that flowed from it are, are, are very well known. But it's important to note that it is about Hunter Biden. It's not about Joe Biden. Uh, there are a lot of people in this country who have children who have fallen to uh, addiction and uh, uh, and despite two years of effort, there's been no successful in in linking Biden to any wrongdoing uh, by Hunter Biden. So I, I think this is, as Hunter described, as Dana described, this is an emotional burden uh, for the president and will be going forward. Uh, I, I don't think I think people can separate out Joe from Hunter. I don't think this issue is uh, is the political burden that perhaps some hope it will for be. For the president, it's a very personal burden. Absolutely, and I think that's serious. I, I totally agree. You know, Mark Short, uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, as we're watching all this, Trump keeps accusing the U.S. Justice Department, the federal government, of political bias. But don't today's charges against President Biden's son fly in the face of that? They might. I think it's probably too early to tell Wolf to see where that investigation continues to go. But I think that a lot of this is generates from, uh, I think, the, the initial part of Donald Trump's presidency when there were bad actors in the Department of Justice. And I think that it's become a useful political weapon for the president, former president, to be able to say there's a two-tiered system of justice and they're coming after me. And so uh, I think you're going to continue to see that argument put out there on the campaign trail. You know, David, I'm, I'm anxious. If you read this 56-page indictment it's got all sorts of incredibly uh, horrible yeah. uh, charges against the son of the they're, president they're, of the united yes. states if you were advising president biden what would you tell him to do now about this look I, I think it's more important that he be a good father now than a clever candidate and i think he should respond as a father would and just say i'm going to be supportive uh, of my son he's lost two children in his life already uh, Wolf, and I don't think he wants to lose a third. And I think he, this must be a source of concern. But, but to Mark's point, you know, I thought it was interesting that uh, uh, Chairman Comer was quick to say, well, I think they're doing him a favor uh, by indicting him because they want to make the case that somehow there's this two-tier system of justice. And very clearly, there's not. Certainly not doing him a favor, releasing all this uh, evidence in, in this document. If you read it, it's, it's, really, it's really horrible. Uh, how would you advise the president? I mean, you're not advising the president. How would you advise the presidential candidates 
the Republican presidential candidates to react to all of this? Well, I don't know how much it really benefits to attack the president's son, to be candid, Wolf. I do think that it has been effective in rallying Republican voters to talk about a two-tiered system of justice. And I, and, I, and I respect David's analysis on this, but I do think for many Republicans, there was a gross sense the Department of Justice was very politicized in the beginning of the Trump administration. And they felt like a lot of those attacks were very political, rather than they were based on facts about the Russia investigation. And so that continues to appeal to Republican voters. Yeah, this criminal indictment of uh, Hunter Biden is, is really powerful. And the, the U.S. Justice Department released it. You know, Dana, before we let you go, I know you have a very special airing this uh, Sunday night with the tennis legend Billie Jean King, where she actually talked about her own presidential ambitions, didn't she? Mm -hmm. She did, Wolf. You know, this year is special for her because it's 50 years, a milestone on a, a number of things, including that famous Battle of the Sexes tennis match when she beat uh, tennis, uh, tennis legend uh, Bobby Riggs. And she talked about the fact that at that time, everybody knew her name. And maybe it was a time because people were urging her to run for office. She could have done it. Listen to what she said. I've heard you say that maybe you should have run for office. After the King Riggs match, I think everybody in the country probably would have known my name. You know, for a lot of politicians, they can't get through the clutter of people even knowing who they are. Is it something that you wanted to do? I think if I did not have sports, would have gone to law school and definitely tried to be president of the United States. Why not? 80 is apparently not something that is disqualifying to be president, so that's no, possible. I, that's another thing. I have experienced ageism now, too. Really? Yeah, and it's not fun. How so? It's just people have kind of given up on you. They don't think you're any good. And Dana Bash, I'm Mark Short, David Axelrod, guys. Thank you very much. An important note to our viewers, be sure to watch Dana's special program, Being Billie Jean King. It airs Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, only here on CNN. We'll be watching. Just ahead, there's breaking news. The Texas Attorney General is taking new steps to stop a woman's abortion after a judge ruled she could legally terminate her pregnancy. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. There's breaking news out of Texas right now. The state attorney general just took new action to try to stop the court-ordered emergency abortion of a woman with a non-viable, potentially very dangerous pregnancy. Let's go to CNN's Ed Levandera. He's joining us from Dallas. So what's the latest then? Well, this legal fight continues. Uh, Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton has at now asking the state Supreme Court to intervene and essentially overturn that legal ruling that 31-year-old Kate Cox won yesterday, where she was granted legal permission to get an abortion. This after uh, she says that doctors have told her uh, that she is uh, 20 weeks pregnant and that her uh, baby suffers from a fatal genetic disorder and that for her future fertility and uh, potential life-saving measures that she would be eligible under the medical exception in Texas to get an abortion. Uh, Ken Paxton is saying that that is not the case, that Cox has not shown 
uh, that her life is in danger, and also goes on to say that anyone involved in helping Ms. Cox have an abortion would still be susceptible to the criminal and civil penalties that would go along with that. Cox's attorneys are saying that the Attorney General is showing stunning disregard for Ms. Cox's future uh, health and future fertility. Wolf? I'm Levin Dara with the latest on that. Thank you very much. In Michigan tonight, the teenage gunman who killed four students at a high school in 2021 has been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Survivors of the shooting and the families of his victims confronted him during an emotional hearing today. I was just shot. I thought I was going to die. Piece of me shattered that day. And two years later, I am still struggling to put them back into place. Our family has a permit hole in it. It can never be fixed, ever. He purposely murdered my daughter, Hannah, and three other children in order to make himself feel better. Seeing as Gene Cazares was inside the courtroom, Gene, so what factored into this sentencing? Well, of course, the judge had to look at the aggravating factors and the mitigating factors, the aggravating factors being the crimes themselves, the fact that the defendant kept a personal journal that no one saw, but he plotted out ahead of time, well ahead of time, that he needed a gun, he was going to give his father money so his father would go buy him a gun, that he wanted to shoot the prettiest girl in school first and the girl with the future. And he had so many details that he planned out. And then you have the mitigating factors, which was his age. He was 15 years old. And science shows that the brain of a 15-year-old is not developed into an adult yet. The fact that he begged his parents for mental health treatment ahead of time, saying that he had issues, he had delusions. Now, late in the day today, the defendant himself, he stood up and he voluntarily did this and he begged for mercy from the judge. I am a really bad person. I have done terrible things that no one should ever do. I have lied, been not trustworthy. I've hurt many people and that's what I've done, and I'm not denying it, but that's not who I plan on to be. And a short time later, the judge issued the sentence. He chose not to conduct the school shooting. When his parents were called to the school on that morning for his drawings, he could have said something then. He could have stopped then and simply accepted the help that was going to be offered for him. He could have changed his mind at that point, but he didn't. He continued to walk through the school, picking and choosing who was going to die. As the defendant said in his own words, this is nobody fault but his own. And in a precedent-setting case for this next year, the parents of this defendant have been charged with involuntary manslaughter saying they also caused this mass school shooting because of purchasing that gun, because they had knowledge of what their son, mental issues that he had, and they did nothing about it. That we'll, we'll see if they will be convicted also. Wolf? We will find out. Jane Cazares, thank you very much. Uh, also tonight, growing calls for the ouster of the president of the University of Pennsylvania after her widely criticized testimony about anti-Semitism on college campuses. CNN's Athena Jones has the story. Shame! Shame! Shame. University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill. That question 
have no ambiguity. Under increasing pressure to resign after what her critics called a disastrous testimony on Capitol Hill this week, featuring this tense exchange. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision. I thought I was in an alternative universe that we're even have to have these conversations and to hear those weak answers. And seemingly not changing minds despite efforts to clean up the matter through a taped statement. I want to be clear. A call for genocide of Jewish people is threatening. I think that Liz McGill obviously needs to step down. Uh, whether she meant what she said from an anti-Semitic anti-Semitic perspective or not, she has failed the Jewish students of Penn. The presidents of Harvard and MIT also facing calls to step down after similar remarks during their testimonies. Now the board of advisors of the university's business school, Wharton, is calling for a change in Penn's leadership. And Ross Stevens, a Penn alum and CEO of Stone Ridge Holdings, has threatened to rescind $100 million worth of his company's shares now held by the university if McGill doesn't resign. This, as GOP Congresswoman Elise Stefanik announced a House committee will investigate Penn, Harvard, and MIT for what she called the president's pathetic and morally bankrupt testimony. Some students want McGill to stay put, like Gila Cohen, who says her great-grandparents were murdered in Auschwitz. She wants a ceasefire in Gaza now. Liz McGill shouldn't resign. She should talk with us. An Israeli-American Jewish scholar of Jewish studies. Why hasn't that conversation happened? That is the next step. We represent a coalition of Jewish students, of Palestinian students, of allies of a lot of diverse backgrounds. And it's important to note that this is an issue of lives lost. And that is the position that we are taking right now. Cohen has this message for fellow Jewish students who feel threatened by pro-Palestinian groups. There is an emotional structure that serves the genocide of Palestinians wherein Jewish students see a Palestinian flag and feel afraid for their own safety, wherein Jewish students may hear a call for freedom. And people have told us to feel afraid. It is our job to say we stand for safety and liberation of all people. Jewish safety and Palestinian safety are intertwined. Meanwhile, Harvard President Claudine Gay apologized for her comments on Capitol Hill, telling the Harvard Crimson Student newspaper, words matter, and saying she should have had the presence of mind to convey what is her, what she called her guiding truth, that threats to our Jewish students have no place at Harvard and will never go unchallenged. Wolf. All right, Athena, thank you. Athena Jones reporting. Coming up, Chris Christie is betting heavily on New Hampshire, just ahead of that state's crucial presidential primary. We'll have a report when we come back. Chris Christie is hitting the campaign trail in New Hampshire, a state considered critical for him as he fights to gain momentum in the 2024 presidential race. CNN's Omar Jimenez has the story. I haven't had one donor, not one of my significant donors or any donor at all, call me and say that we should get out of this race. Um, I haven't had one supporter call me and tell me to get out of this race. So at this point, there are no plans for you to go anywhere. Omar, um, you come on January 23rd, you're going to see me here shaking hands until the polls close. Um, and we're going to do very well in New Hampshire. I'm not going anywhere. The motto in New Hampshire is live free or die. But at this stage, for Chris Christie, it may be do or die. It's game time now. 
For the past two days, Christie has been touring college campuses in New Hampshire, hoping to drive enthusiasm among some younger voters. Your vote means more here than it will mean in any other state in the country this year. So that's why I'm here. Our party has neglected college campuses and college voters um, over the course of the cycles, both in statewide races and in national races. With the campaign in full swing, a CNN University of New Hampshire poll last month showed Christie in third place in the Granite State's GOP primary at 14 percent, behind Donald Trump at 42 percent and Nikki Haley at 20 percent. In the battle to emerge as the leading Trump alternative, a strong finish here could send a critical message. And the picture now may not exactly match the picture in a month. So what we've seen historically in the New Hampshire primary is that upwards of 25% to a third say they make up their mind on election day, and upwards of 50% are still undecided over the last weekend of the election. So a lot can happen. The former New Jersey governor is waving off suggestions he end his bid and throw his support behind Haley, even as he publicly defends her from attacks from rivals. This is a smart, accomplished woman. You should stop insulting her. On the campaign trail, he stood by that strategy. I'm going to try to beat her, but I respect her. But he maintains it's respect, not retreat. We're both trying to beat the other one. Are you and Nikki Haley able to coexist in this race without benefiting Trump? Of course. If Nikki were to get out of this race tomorrow and tell all her voters to endorse me, do you think that they would actually all come and vote for me? Of course not. And while the polls to this point haven't exactly favored the former New Jersey governor, there's only one poll he cares about. So should we all just give up because you guys took a poll? Elections aren't determined by you. Elections are determined by voters. And not one person has voted yet. And that last point, he really emphasized, saying the only poll he cares about is the one that comes from people who are actually voting. Now, he's focused a lot of his campaign on New Hampshire. So I asked him what's next. And he specifically said Michigan. Why? Because in that state, you don't have to register as a Republican or Democrat to vote in the primaries, meaning anyone who doesn't want Trump has the chance to vote for Christie. Wolf. Omar Jimenez, thank you very much for that report, and we'll be right back. The war between Israel and Hamas has been the deadliest conflict for journalists in decades, amid allegations that Israel has deliberately targeted journalists. Brian Todd is following the story for us. Brian, what can you tell us? Well, tonight we have new information on the casualties among journalists and one horrific incident that's currently under investigation. A jarring concussive blast. Then the Agence France press camera shot goes dark. Oh, Moments later, chaos and a vehicle on fire. This double strike in southern Lebanon on October 13th killed Reuters videographer Isam Abdullah and wounded six other journalists. And then boom, we were hit. It came out of nowhere. Tonight, a forensic analysis by CNN suggests it was Israeli tank fire which killed Abdullah and injured the others in two strikes, 37 seconds apart. CNN's findings confirm reports by two news organizations, Reuters and Agence France Press, and two human rights groups, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. The Israeli army knew, or should have known, that they're civilians. However, it attacked them twice, 37 seconds apart. Hours after that attack, CNN reported that those journalists were wearing clearly labeled media flak jackets. 
CNN also cited a Lebanese security source reporting that an Israeli Apache helicopter was seen over the site of the attack, around the time of the attack, suggesting Israeli forces had visibility of the journalists. We were in an exposed area, all of us wearing our helmets, our vests, just doing our job, covering the clashes, and we, we were maintaining safe distance from the front line. AFP and Human Rights Watch claim the October 13th strikes were deliberate on the part of the Israeli military, Human Rights Watch calling it an apparent war crime. In a statement to Reuters, Israel Defense Forces spokesperson Richard Hecht said, quote, we don't target journalists. A separate statement from the IDF says Israeli forces were responding to the launch of an anti-tank missile at the time, were concerned about the possible infiltration of terrorists into Israel at that moment. And the statement said, quote, being in this area is dangerous. The incident is currently under review. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, at least 63 journalists have been killed in Israel and Gaza since October 7th. Majority, the absolute majority, 90% are local Palestinian journalists. The committee says this particular war, so far covering only about two months, has been the deadliest period for journalists since the committee began gathering data 31 years ago. What makes this conflict uniquely dangerous for journalists? The exponential risk that is primarily faced by local Palestinian journalists who live in Gaza, uh, who had no safe haven and no exit. Sharif Mansour of the Committee to Protect Journalists says top U.S. officials should exert more pressure on the Israelis regarding the casualties among journalists. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken has said it's important that the October 13th incident be thoroughly investigated. Wolf? Brian Todd reporting. Brian, thanks very much. And to our viewers, thanks very much for watching. I'm Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Aaron Burnett, our front starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.